The future of healthcare is exciting with many new therapies finding incredible success. The Heroic Dose brought to you by Microdose is a one-day virtual conference that will explore the use of psychedelic therapies in military veterans and first responders in an effort to combat the alarming rates of PTSD, substance abuse, and suicide in this coveted yet undeserved demographic. Topics discussed include the therapeutic potential of psychedelics over opioids for pain management, reducing the graduation of acute pain to chronic pain, and preventing suicide in the long run. The Heroic Dose will cover the intersection of clinical care, research, and investment arenas. Now, while this is an all-day event on April 22nd, yours truly will be moderating a panel at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The panels focus the altered state of combat veteran trauma and the quest for novel therapeutics in psychedelic substances history and overview of current treatments. And the panel will feature four veterans who have used psychedelic therapies to combat PTSD, trauma, opioid addiction, and I would love to show them some support from the phenomenal Brian Nichols Show audience. So please follow the link to the show notes to the Microdose website and sign up for this incredible virtual conference. And if you are a veteran, a 100% discount will be applied at checkout. Again, that's the Heroic Dose brought to you by Microdose. Link in the show notes. And now, on to the show. Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Well, happy Friday there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. How about yesterday's fantastic sneak peek? That's right. We are going video here at The Brian Nichols Show. I am so excited to be adding this brand new format along with some other amazing, new, exciting, behind-the-scenes changes So guys, if you have not hit that subscribe button yet, I don't know what you're waiting for because uh, there's going to be a lot of exciting stuff come up here very quick and you do not want to miss it. So number one, hit subscribe so you're not missing any episodes. Number two, hi, Brian Nichols here. Uh, And thank you for joining us on today's episode. I'm so excited to have today's guest. Nolan Gray is joining the program. We're discussing all things in terms of government doing too much and thinking they're doing great, uh, which is a reoccurring theme, I guess, here on the program, but specifically looking at uh, in California for example, how their environmental laws actually ended up causing more harm than good. And that's uh, concerning, I would say. And also how we do have a problem inherently built into our our systems where these bad uh, policies get codified into law and that's just hard to change them. So uh, no one digs into uh, how, unfortunately, a lot of these problems could be so easily avoided if only we were to pay attention. So folks, pay attention. With that being said, on to the show, Nolan Gray here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Absolutely. Nolan, thank you for joining the Brian Nichols Show, and I wanted to have you on the show today because when you're looking at states like California, you see states that a lot of people would love to live in. It's a beautiful state, and yet we see people just vacating California en masse, especially in the era of 2020 COVID, because the state's regulations have just gone through the roof, and you just wrote an amazing article over at The Atlantic talking about the California Environmental Quality Act and uh, how that's actually weaponizing environmental law in uh, in California. But before we get there, how about this? Let's first start out and introduce you to the Brian Nichols Show audience. I know you've been doing a lot of work. You, you've been doing a lot of research in UCLA. So, Nolan, uh, introduce yourself to the Brian Nichols Show audience. What got you into uh, focusing about environmental law? Yeah, well, I'm a professional city planner. Uh, I've worked as a city planner in New York City. I'm currently working on a PhD in city planning at the University of California, Los Angeles. 
So I'm right here at the heart of the California affordable housing crisis. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research and writing on how uh, government regulation uh, is a big part of that crisis, and I look forward to discussing that with you today. For sure. And I, it's funny, I, I've been having more of these solutions-based conversations on my program more and more, more frequently. I actually just had Scott Byer on the program from the Market Urbanism Institute um, focusing on, yes, free market-based solutions to a lot of the problems we see in these big cities. And you as a city planner, my goodness, you you likely had, got the opportunity, right, to see those firsthand. I say opportunity very loosely, no one. Um, but let's talk about this. You know, when you're going from this city planning kind of position now to looking at environmental law, right? We see a lot of the reoccurring themes, and I would say that one overarching theme is externalities, right? In cities, because we're in such confined spaces, a, a noise complaint is much more significant than if you're out in the middle of nowhere. So, for example, I'm in, I'm from originally northern New York State. New, northern New York State has more cows than people versus if you were to go to New York City, and that's a much different situation. But to have an, an ordinance law for, for uh, noises as the same level, it would be a little silly, right? So we see the externality conversation then carry over into environmental conversations. So I think this is a conversation that it can sometimes get a little murky because there's no definitive or I guess objective yes, no's or, or black and white, uh, you know, answers. It seems to be some kind of a gray because externalities, I guess, are very based on the person that it's impacting. So let's kind of start off here, Nolan. California has these crazy, crazy, uh, strict environmental laws. How did California get to the point that they are in this case currently with some of the most strict environmental laws in the entire country? Yeah, well, to exactly to your point, you know, a lot of these rules were adopted for good reasons, right? So, you know, coming out of the 60s and 70s, um, there had been, you know, a lot of environmentally destructive development, right? Development in wetlands or highways that destroyed uh, entire neighborhoods, right? Uh, uh, state and federal highways, um, you know, un, un sort of checked pollution with certain industries. And so there was an understandable impulse to say, all right, we need to make people consider the, the impacts that their actions might have on neighbors. Um, and originally the idea was that the California Environmental Quality Act would really just look at government actions, right? So the idea was that if the government's going to undertake uh, some infrastructure project or they're going to change policy in some way, they should do an environmental study uh, and fully inform anyone who might be impacted of those impacts. Um, then, of course, as I detail in the piece, this quickly spirals out of control to where it's applying to any form of development that happens in California, including even a little small, you know, if I want to take a single family home and turn it into a fourplex or something like that, you have to do a full environmental review in many contexts. Uh, and it's completely spiraled out of control. And it's become a way to just frankly stop development that in many cases would actually be good for the environment. Well, interesting. Okay. It would be good for the environment. Your average person hears that and they say, time out, Nolan. Like, you're saying that it, in this case where you have more development, i.e. going into these, you know, I would say more rural areas where nature has been left preserved, that that would actually help improve nature? How How, how is that so? Well, it depends on where the housing is, right? So if you have an existing city, right, and we have San Francisco, Los Angeles, we have a lot of major cities here in California, and a lot of people want to live in them. That's why rents are high. You know, they're not perfect places to live by any means. The weather's not so bad, if I do say so myself. But a lot of people want to live in California. They want the opportunity. They want the weather, et cetera. And the simple fact is that there's not enough housing to accommodate them. So what they end up having to do is bid up the price of the existing housing. 
Now, housing in cities is generally going to be very good for the environment. If you live in a city, uh, you might be able to walk or take a bike. Uh, you might be able to take a bus or even a train to get to work. This cuts out a significant portion of your uh, potential emissions. Or even if you just have a shorter commute, right? You're just you're consuming less gas. It's generally going to be better for the environment all around. Uh, living in an apartment or a townhouse where there's a shared wall is generally going to be more energy efficient. But under the topsy-turvy system of CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, in many cases, these infill projects face lawsuits from neighbors that don't want them to happen. Maybe they don't want more people living in their neighborhood or they don't want uh, more people coming into their space, this, that and the other. So they launch these frivolous lawsuits to claim some sort of environmental damage. And what this ironically has the effect of doing is that it forces more housing development out further to the periphery of town, exactly like you just said, where it might have a much more deleterious environmental impact. Right. So if we can't build things like a small apartment building near a major job center in a place like Los Angeles, that housing is going to go far out into the desert or it's going to go far out uh, into the mountains where it's going to have a much more dramatic environmental impact. And those people are going to have long commutes that are going to bring with them pretty serious emissions issues. Wow. So you hear the unintended consequence. Right. And you, yeah. you mentioned something earlier in your first response, and that was based on an understandable impulse. Right. That's something that I think we see a lot of folks right now, especially in the era of COVID, the mentality, well, we have to do something, right? No one, like, like you see the problem, we have to do something. So talk to me, is part of maybe the problem that when we see these problems arise, and it does have these long-term uh, or just more grand externalities, that it's more so that we do not currently have the free market solutions in place to help deal with those externalities. And that's why we have that impulse to say, government, please come help. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And, you know, I would just call attention to the fact of the housing shortage. I mean, the housing shortage is at the root, really, a, a function of excessive regulation at the local level. In many California cities, it would be illegal to take a, a large single family home and turn it into a duplex and maybe create two housing units for people. Uh, in many parts of California, it would be illegal to take a strip mall, right? We're coming out of this coronavirus pandemic. There's going to be a lot of retail that's gone and might never come back. But in many parts of California, it's illegal to take those strip malls and turn them into maybe townhouses or apartment buildings, maybe with shops on the ground floor. You might have an increase in population that actually makes the retail more sustainable, but under zoning rules, you actually can't do it. That's wild. That's wild. And like part of this. And so I'm going to take a step back for a second. Right. So we, we talk on the show quite a bit about, again, the the unintended consequences and more so having to look at what actually came as a result. Right. From government. And part of the problem with these these feel good solutions that we see is that not only is government woefully, woefully inefficient at actually trying to solve the problem, but the, the time <laughs> that it takes to actually get a, a solution in place. John Stossel just did a phenomenal video over at Reason. And uh, it was looking at a bathroom that was built for a park in New York City. Now, Nolan, just if I had to ask you, right? If you Now, you obviously have a much better educated guest. But if let's say you didn't have your past experience working in, in city planning and such. What would you guess that a, a public restroom in a park should cost? Oh gosh! Uh, public, if it's just a just a men's just, room, and just a, a men's room, room and a women's room, and, and then a changing room slash gender neutral room. Um, 
Maybe half a million. I don't know. In New York City. Maybe? In New York City. Yep. Yeah. Maybe two, maybe half a million. Two million dollars. <laughs> now, Nolan, here's part two of that question. How long do you think it would take to, to build a, a restroom? Should be able to build a restroom in a year. <laughs> Five years on average. Yeah. So that just blew my mind here watching John Sossel mm-hmm. and John Sossel's interviewing with uh, one of the, the city planning uh, folks in New York City and, and in the John Sossel. You're telling me that this is more efficient than a public bathroom versus a private bathroom. And then he like showed a private bathroom that was right down the, the street in a private park that cost, I think it was like $210,000 for, for that park. So it's actually, I say all that, right? I, I, I use that example to prove the point. It's inherently built into the infrastructure of government to be slow, to be inefficient, to be not as responsive. So despite seeing the need, and in this case, it'd be a need for a bathroom, (laughs) right? Instead of seeing that and saying, okay, how can we solve that in the most cost-effective way? Instead, you see it go up in price. It takes longer to actually get the solution in place. And, and you look to the left and you say, oh, guess what? Your private sector buddies did it in literally a fifth of the time for a tenth of the price. And it makes so much sense when we're just talking about it like this, right? So I, I, I outline all of this to say, Nolan, why? Why haven't folks realized this? And why do we see states like California just continuously not just embrace, but then expand these these uh, these these really authoritarian regulatory powers that they have. Well, exactly to your point. In many cases, these zoning regulations were written fifty to a hundred years ago. Um, you know, they were written and optimized around a totally different time. They got on the books, and then they're just impossible to change, right? And so you have you know these these zoning rules that were written maybe if you're lucky in the sixties. And the needs of any given California city were just dramatically different back then. Right. And it's just so politically difficult to update these things. Now, I do think there is a silver lining here that I think a lot of people are waking up to the problem, really, because now it's affecting average Californians, middle class yeah. Californians. I mean, they're the ones, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, people fleeing California, you know, wealthy people fleeing California. In many cases, it's, it's working class people who just can't afford decent housing. So they move to places like Nevada and Arizona. And, you know, if those places are going to face similar issues uh, down the road, they have just as strict rules in many cases. But I think there is a silver lining here. People are aware that the crisis is, is very real. And there has been some sort of interventions where the state government actually says to local governments, you know, this is intergovernmental fighting, which is a whole other interesting thing, you know, saying to them, hey, you need to allow at least, you know, if, if a developer comes to you and say, hey, I, I want to build some of the housing that this region desperately needs, you can't stop them from doing it. Mm. Um, so in the past few years, they've made it legal across the state. If you want to uh, take an unused basement or an unused attic or an unused garage, you can turn that into an extra apartment. They call it a, a, a granny flat, right? Because traditionally a grandma would live there or a mother-in-law unit, right? Uh, here in the Southwest, they call them casitas uh, as well. So those are now legal across the state, and they're doing a few small things like that. Uh, but, you know, it, it is so far too little too late, and hopefully they're going to take this problem more seriously. And really, you know, we talk a lot about California, but this is a national problem in many yeah. cases. And, of course, not just in places like New York City, where it's also a very extreme crisis. But, you know, there are cities and towns all across the country where they I mean, have Philly. very tight. Yeah, same thing. Philly. 
Exactly. Yeah. And it, it could even be certain neighborhoods within towns, right, where there's a huge demand for housing in a particular neighborhood. Uh, but you have neighborhood groups or neighborhood associations or community groups that leverage uh, zoning regulation to stop new housing production. And what it ends up doing is people get displaced. And in an urban context, what they do is they go to the next neighborhood over, which might be a, a, an affordable neighborhood to a working class community, and they end up bidding up the rents because those people have no other options but to, to move over to that neighborhood. So it's an incredibly complicated issue. And really, the root of the problem is that these rules are stopping new housing construction from happening. So we talked about, I mean, we, we specifically focus on California, right? But macro level, let's expand this to U.S. and maybe just we'll set a blueprint right? We're acknowledging that this is just a mess. It's it's entangled and it's entangled intentionally to make it more difficult to unwind. So how, how can we start to implement these changes that will unwind the just massive red tape mess, this bureaucratic regulatory mess, but do it in a timely enough fashion that it actually gets something accomplished. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, you know, I think there are a few things that are happening in this space that are really interesting. The first is what I talked about with in California, where state governments are saying to local governments, hey, like you, you have to allow some housing production, right? Um, you need to build your fair share or allow your fair share, right? You know, local governments don't have to go out and build the housing, but they can't block it if someone's trying to actually build it. Um, you know, I think another angle here is that the federal government actually heavily subsidizes housing as an investment. Um, so when you buy your house, uh, you can deduct mortgage interest. Uh, when you sell it, you're exempt from capital gains. Uh, you know, there are all these sort of tax gimmicks that make, you know, incentivize Americans to, to plow a lot of their money into their homes. And rather than maybe something like, you know, a 401k or, or even just a an index fund, right? Like a, a more reasonable investment. So the federal government has encouraged Americans to plow all their money into their housing. And so, of course, they're very conservative about what gets built near them. And if, you know, if you're a, a, an incumbent owner, right, you have an incentive to use the power of your local government to block any new housing from being built because it raises the value of your own property, right? So there's a little bit of a, you know, a cronyism issue here, right? If I'm in an area where rents are high and I'm a property owner, well, I have no incentive to allow any more housing to be built. So I'm right. going to be the person who's going to show up at the public meeting and call my council member and say, no, we can't allow any new units to be built. And I'll come up with some nice story of, like, oh, I don't I don't want people being displaced or, oh, I don't want, you know, a shadow being cast on the community garden next door. You know, but there's a more lucid explanation here, which is that, you know, if you are uh, in this incumbent owner group, uh, this sort of little cartel situation works pretty well for you. And so we need to find ways to, you know, we're not heavily uh, incentivizing one form of investment over another. And then we need to find ways to take power out of these local cartels that, that capture government and, and use it for their own financial benefit. Let's talk about the also the unintended consequences of when you see the, the tax base move out of these states, the regulations remain, right? Those regulations don't go away. But as more and more of that tax base goes away and the regulations remain, where's that cost go towards? It goes towards the people who are still paying taxes, right? Or they just pretend that it's not happening. They go into billions of dollars in debt. That's also an option. Um, <laughs> we see that in 2020, it's like a uh, who's lies in anyway. The rules are made up and money doesn't matter. Apparently we can just print it from the invisible money tree. Um, but when you see 
all of a sudden this money starting to be, or the, the, rather the, the cost being pushed more towards the middle class, I'm going to even say that I think we could see an unintended consequence of slower innovation in those areas because now not only are you not having the ability to have the extra income to invest in R&D and different, uh, you know, different technologies, but also, I mean, go go to name third world country and say, go make or go go show me your solar panel setup right now. Go tell me how you how would you make a solar panel setup? They're like, I don't know. I can burn two sticks to make fire and heat my home. And people will, I think, have a natural reversion back to the basic, more inefficient technologies, i.e. sticks, coal, oil, the, the, the known commodities that we do see in the world that work and that, that actually might end up inhibiting the, the growth that we want to see in these sectors. Yeah, on the solar point, I mean, I think there's a great example here, right, where the state of California wanted to encourage more uptake of of, uh, you know, alternative fuels. And they required that every new home has to have a solar panel on it. Right. And so this is this is fine in theory. Right. It wouldn't it be nice if everyone had a solar panel on their home. Sure. It's fantastic. But, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Right. Like right. that. It, that just means that the housing that gets built is going to be more expensive. Um, and so if I'm if you're a California household that can't afford a house as is, well, I'm sorry to say that the housing just got more expensive. You know, so they, there might have been some way to say like, all right, hey, you know, solar energy uh, has this much impact less than other forms of fuel. Uh, you know, we're going to try to internalize these externalities. And if you use solar, like, you know, we'll, we'll help you recuperate some of that. OK, sure. That, that could be fine if you design it right. But just sort of throwing a mandate out and saying that every new home has to have a solar panel. This is just more uh, cost that's put on the backs of, of working California families. And in many cases, they can't afford those extra costs. And so they leave. They move to places where they're going to have a much more harmful impact on the environment, right? If you live in a place like San Francisco or Los Angeles, the weather here is very mild. You don't you don't use a lot of power. You don't use a lot of you don't you rarely have the AC on. You almost never have the heat on. Um, so you're almost like a radical environmentalist just by living in some of these places. Right. Uh, but then they price people out and they move to places like Nevada, where I can tell you you're going to have the AC blasting year round. Um, and then they try to you know say that, that this is the most environmentalist place uh, in the country, and then. I'm sorry to say that, that we have a long way to go to get there. Policy doesn't equal outcomes. We see that the war on exactly. poverty did, did is poverty gone? I don't think so. Is war on terror terrorism gone? Is is war done? No. War on drugs? People not use drugs anymore? No one. I don't know. But we see the war on on you know the war on fossil fuels or the war against climate change. I'm sorry. I'm thinking what we're seeing is a lot of these policies, to your point, are actually exacerbating the problem unintentionally due to these these really unintended consequences. And it does speak to the inefficiencies when we decide to have one unilateral decision-making force say, all right, as a nation, a state, a world, we're going to do this. <laughs> Instead of saying, well, maybe one collective, yes, this is the one approach isn't the best approach. Do you really want to put all your eggs in the proverbial basket? I don't think so. You want to make sure that you're trying different things and say, okay, you know, what can we test? What can the market creativity and collaboration, what can we build and, and really help solve problems versus just saying, all right, we're going to do this by the, the force of government. Here we go. Let's hope it works. So you, you started to, to paint the, the silver lining 
Nolan. And I, I like to I like to end the show as always as we're focusing towards positivity and things that we can look forward to. And I think you started to speak a little bit more towards people are waking up. People are becoming more aware of what's happening. We're seeing this in the school choice world, especially I've been talking to my good buddy Corey DeAngelis and the work he's been having success doing, getting people to wake up, not only wake up, but now we're getting policy into action where school choices, we're funding students, not institutions like that's exciting. So let me ask you this. As we paint the picture for the folks here at the audience, what are some of the, the things to look forward to, let's say five years from now, in terms of maybe getting away from the, this red tape mess that we found ourselves in? You know, I like to think that we're at rock bottom right now, uh, which is not, you, you wanted an inspiring place to, uh, <laughs> to close your show. Stick Man, with me for a yeah, moment. Yeah, for the alcoholic, right? start, start at the worst. You can only go up from there. <laughs> We're, we're at rock bottom in a lot of respects, right? You know, so many of America's most uh, affluent, productive cities are just too expensive and working families are being displaced and it's an incredible problem. Uh, but, you know, I think that we are hitting a turning point here. And I think a lot of exactly as you say, a lot of people are aware of this is an issue It's affecting more and more people. And more and more people are looking at the rules, you know, that are preventing this new housing from being built. You know, these are things like saying, all right, if you want to build a, an apartment right next to a bus stop, you have to have two off-street parking spaces. So if you want to build an apartment building, you have to have a parking garage, right? Well, why, why should the government require that, right? Like if, right. if a developer builds an apartment building and there's not enough parking, you know, uh, this person is not going to be able to rent out the units. Uh, the, the incentives are aligned, right? This person will build the necessary amount of parking. Uh, or things like single-family zoning, where we say, all right, in 70 to 80% of most American cities, you can only build one single-family home on a 5,000-square-foot lot surrounded by a big green lawn. Um, and, you know, some people might want that, and that's totally okay. You know, we're not trying to ban any particular way of living, but if someone says, hey, I want to take that and build a small fourplex, you know, and I want to live in one of the units and rent the rest of the three out, right? This is something that people did through all of human history, right? This is how most people paid for their housing. You go you go and look at the, you'll see this probably all over Philly too. You can go and look at the brownstones in New York and there's a unit on top and there's a unit in the bottom. Yep. And what would happen is a family would buy the brownstone and they would rent out the bottom unit and that, that would help them defray the cost of their mortgage. You know, that's illegal to do in most cities and people are looking at these rules and they say, I would love that. I would love to like rent out some extra space and have that person help me pay my mortgage. That's like a dream. Um, yeah. So people are looking at these rules and I think that there's real momentum to, to clear a lot of these out and, and just allow for more housing to be built. I mean, how, how fantastic is it going to be when people don't have to worry about spending half of their income on rent? I mean, imagine like, really, this is what I always uh, invite people to do. Imagine a world where you really are spending like a quarter, maybe a third at the most of your money uh, of your earnings on rent. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And the way that we get to that, you know, promised land, here's the, uh, here's the positive ending that you wanted, um, is to get out of the way of the market providing the new supply that, that there's all this demand for. Amen. Nolan Gray, you have some plugs. So obviously what we're going to do is we're going to include the the link to how CEQA is an abomination that hurts housing from the Atlantic, but also we're going to include the link to your awesome show over on YouTube, Pop Culture Urbanism. Now, I want folks to at least be prepared for what to expect when they go ahead and hit subscribe. So give us the rundown. What uh, What is this awesome new YouTube show you got, Rowan? Yeah, so it's fantastic. I'm, I'm working with the director, Calvin Tran, and sponsored by the uh, Pacific Legal Foundation. And we're just sort of getting into the urbanism of all sorts of movies, TV shows, video games, and more. Uh, we just wrapped up season two. Uh, where we talked 
about cyberpunk 2077 as well as the cyberpunk genre in general. Uh, we've talked about kind of everything. We've talked about the, tweet, the Twin Peaks TV show. We've talked about, um, shoot, what else do we got? Uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. There's a little something for everyone, and we kind of get into the the urban planning behind all of these things that you might not otherwise think have anything to do with cities. But uh, Ooh, I like You should do yeah. a Star Wars one. Uh, we're racking our brains trying to come up with a Star Wars uh, idea, and I'm sure there's Coruscant. one in the works. Could you imagine oh, yeah, Coruscant. doing Coruscant? I was just thinking when you were talking about like the stacked houses, like that's all Coruscant is, just a bunch of stacked houses. <laughs> this is one big city planet. That would be a fascinating... You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hook you up with my good buddy Stephen Kent because he's got an amazing podcast, Beltway Banthas, and it's entirely Star Wars focused. I think that could be a fun crossover conversation, but that's a conversation for another day. Nolan Gray, thank you for all the hard work you're doing focusing on uh, yeah, all, the, all this work, not just getting rid of the red tape, but also how we can get some solutions in place to help not get that red tape back in our lives again. Nolan, thank you so much for joining the, joining the Brian Nichols Show. Thanks so much, Brian. Our goal at the Chris Spangle Show is to help you sound smarter while talking with your friends. If you struggle to understand politics, we explain it from an independent libertarian perspective with all of the irreverence modern politics deserves. We toss out the screaming heads and put people before political parties and give context to the news to make you think. I'm the host. I'm a 15-year veteran of politics and media, and this show is published every Saturday. It's part of the We Are Libertarians network, and be sure to join Wall Plus for bonus podcasts, the complete archives, commercial-free shows, and more. Subscribe now at wearelibertarians.com. Get ready to start your new morning ritual with our new sponsor, Mudwater. Coffee is one of America's favorite beverages, with more and more people starting their coffee habits every day with a cup of that flavorful anxiety juice. But let's be real. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm working on getting more coffee into my life? Millions of people complain about the jitters that come from coffee consumption. Our morning coffee rituals can be habit-forming and, for some people, can make getting a good night's sleep almost impossible. And while nearly all of us like the smell, taste, and ritual of our morning coffee, why not explore eliminating the negative aspects of our morning brew? Well, what if your coffee replacement helped induce alertness, not dependency, improve mental capacity and function, improve physical stamina and performance, improve immunity and overall health? Oh, and by the way, it tastes good enough to drink every single day. Meet Mudwater. Mudwater is your fastest growing coffee alternative in the market, consisting of organic ingredients lauded by cultures both old and young for their health and performance benefits. With one-seventh the caffeine of coffee, Mud gives you the natural energy and focus you expect from coffee, but without the jitters and crash. With an organic blend of mushrooms and ingredients like cacao, marsala chai, turmeric, lion's mane, and more, Mudwater offers a beverage like no other. Whether you want to enjoy it hot, cold, as a latte, or however you take your coffee in the morning, Mudwater is zero sugar, zero crash, zero jitter alternative, sure to leave you feeling recharged and refocused. Listen, I'm really excited to have Mudwater as a sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show because I've been able to see the Mudwater difference for myself, and you can too, so click the link in the show notes to get some mud, support the show, and get your new morning ritual started right with Mudwater. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Nolan Gray. Thank you, Nolan, for joining the program, and thank you for all the hard work you're doing helping raise awareness to, yes, how all these laws can end up causing more harm than good. Folks, if you enjoyed the episode, do me a favor. Go ahead and share today's episode with family, friends, whoever it may be that needs to hear the message. And when you do, go ahead and tag yours truly at B. Nichols Liberty, Twitter, Facebook, Minds.com, and Parlor.com. Also, I'll include all of Nolan's social media there in the show notes. I'll go ahead and give him some love as well. Also, if you enjoyed the episode in particular, well, let me hear about it. Number one, email me, Brian at Brian Nichols Show. Dot com or 
And you could do this. This is actually the best thing you could do. Head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a quick five-star rating and review. Why do you listen to the program, folks? And I know there are tens of thousands of you out there who are listening every single month. So I want to hear from you. Head over at Apple Podcasts. Give us that quick five-star rating and tell me why you are a member of the audience. Uh, Again, it means a lot because, number one, it shows me that you guys are engaged. Number two, it shows other folks out there what you're getting from the program. So I would greatly appreciate uh, a quick what, five minutes of your time, two minutes of your time? Does it even cost you that much time to do that? So folks, uh, again, uh, if you enjoy the episode, uh, that's something you could do. Also, if you enjoy what we're doing here at the program, I would ask you to do uh, one solid thing, and that is to uh, help us out here as we go into next week. And, and guys, it's it's go time, because we have the Heroic Dose coming up here on Thursday, uh, where I'm going to be hosting a great panel uh, with some amazing folks uh, sponsored by Microdose. And we're talking about how psychedelics can help change the conversation about mental health for veterans who are suffering from PTSD, depression, anxiety, so on and so forth. It is a great, great opportunity for us as libertarians to enter into this conversation, reach new people. Remember, what we talk about here is we have to go into the spaces where people are, reach them, and then bring them to us. Hey, I'm libertarian, but they didn't ask me to be the host for the show because I'm a libertarian. They asked me to be the host for the show because I can ask good questions. And that's something I am so excited to be able to do is not be a libertarian on stage, but rather just be some Someone who's showing that we care. And when they ask, maybe about my politics, I don't know, we'll see. Guess what? I can maybe drop some hints about not hurting people, not taking their stuff. I don't know. That might be a good way to enter a conversation, don't you think? So, folks, that is coming up here this coming Thursday, the 22nd. Link in the show notes. If you are a member of the Brian Nichols Show audience, it is free. So what do you what do you have to lose? Instead of what, a, a couple hours on a Thursday? What are you doing on a Thursday morning that could not be used spent helping support an awesome organization like Microdose raising up awareness to psychedelics? I mean, folks, come on, this is a great chance for uh, you to learn a lot number 1, support a great organization number 2, and also show that the Brian Nichols show audience has some love. So, again, Folks, link in the show notes, and it's Friday, so I have to go ahead, of course, and read you one of our awesome five-star rating and reviews, A Great Libertarian Voice. I am so happy to have found this great libertarian podcast. Keep up the great work. We need more of this in the world. Thank you. That means a lot. And if, if again, folks, if you want to hear your review right on air, well, number one, go ahead to Apple Podcasts, because every Friday we read a quick five-star rating and review, but... Number two, that makes it makes me feel so good. I had a buddy, um, you know, who I I talked to a few times since since high school, and he messaged me because he listened to the show, and he said, "You know what, Brian?" And I'll, here, we'll end with a story. He said, "Brian, you know, back when you, we were in high school, um, I used to think you were a dork. <laughs> Don't worry, I did too." Um, but he said because I didn't really get the politics thing. I wasn't I wasn't concerned about it. I wasn't really caring about it, and honestly, it didn't really impact me. And it wasn't until I got my first job, and it wasn't until I started to have my family, and it wasn't until all these different milestones he was reaching did he realize how much government was impacting his ability to live his life. And he said, you know, I, I knew that you are very involved in politics still. He said, I know, I know I saw you post about your show a few times, so I gave it a listen. And guess what? He went from being a more, I would say, cons- uh, a conservatarian, eh, not even conservatarian, he's, he's like a conservative Republican who really was politically apathetic to now he's pretty much a libertarian. Uh, he doesn't really actively do anything political, but his ideas that he now holds are overtly the libertarian. I didn't push him. I didn't hound him. He found it on his own because we are talking about things here at the program that 
people are looking to hear more about, trying to get some insights. So coming up here next week, and this is where I'm just so excited. Uh, next week, we're starting off uh, on, well, here, first of all, I cannot downplay our, our uh, Sunday Candidate Highlight Series, even though they're not video, because <laughs> I had a great conversation with a gentleman who's running for uh, New York, or New, New York, New Jersey governor, and that is one Greg Mealy. Uh, so great conversation to be had there coming up on Sunday, and then starting off officially with a new video podcast, as you guys saw with the sneak peek there on Thursday, starting things with good friend Ken Kenny Cody, he's returning to the program, starting things on our video segment, but also, of course, folks, we're still going to have the traditional podcast, don't you worry, Um, I'm still doing my audio version, but Kenny Cody will be joining the program here on Monday, then joining us on Wednesday, we are having the ever-wonderful David Osborne, now you guys probably remember David, he joined us way back in, I think, 2019, um, when he was part of the Fairness Center, and he is now uh, starting a new organization, Americans for Fair Treatment, and they're helping public sector employees, giving them tools beyond what the Fairness Center does from a legal standpoint, but an actual tool that they can use from a free speech standpoint to stand up against these public sector unions. David's no longer in the legalese world, and he lets loose. And boy, it was a lot of fun to have that conversation there with David. So you can get that on Wednesday. And then on Friday, yes, we are joined by good friend Chris Cargill from Free Markets Destroy. That's right. Free Markets Destroy. You're like, wait, this is a libertarian show. What is this? No, Free Markets Destroy is a fun, unique approach to how we can reach Gen Zers, some younger millennials, and entering the conversation they're already having in their mind with a preconceived notion that free markets are bad. And they see free markets destroy, they want to read more, but what if free markets could help destroy hunger, racism, disease, you know, the things that Gen Z cares about? Well, what about that? Chris Cargill joins the program and helps outline exactly how this brand new marketing approach from the Washington Policy Institute has been doing some amazing work reaching folks beyond the traditional echo chamber. So folks, a great conversation on Friday Four phenomenal episodes coming up here next week. So folks, thank you for all the love, support that you guys give us here at The Brian Nichols Show. And I'm sorry this is a long-winded outro, but there's a lot that we had to go ahead and, uh, and cover because there's a lot that's going to be happening as we move things forward here into the, uh, the the rest of 2021. So thank you folks for joining us here on the program. Thank you to my amazing team behind the scenes for keeping things running and keeping me sane. And thank you to you guys for being the best audience out there. So that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Nolan Gray. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.